Welcome to Why We Do This, a podcast for and by performing artists. Find out more about our guests and about us at whywedothispodcast.com. Our guest today is Anna Abhau Elliott, an inspired playmaker, established writer, actor, director, and improviser, and one of my dearest friends. She is the person I call when I need a reminder of why art is so important and also to decompress about how freaking hard it is sometimes to just push through. My dad and I talked to Anna about how she is using history as a subject for making plays and how we as artists have so much power to challenge our audience's understanding. We also talk about Twelfth Night, like a lot. Anna is currently in graduate school for studio art, blending and intertwining elements, making her own art forms. We start off with how she responds to the very American question, what do you do? Just a note, there's a dog in her lap named Turtle, a very sweet baby who sometimes snores. So if you hear a strange noise, it's probably just Turtle having sweet puppy dreams. Okay, here's Anna. Our guest today is the amazing Anna Abhau Elliott who is a dear, dear, dear friend of mine. Um, and you are a theater maker of, in many facets, playwright, actor, improviser. <laughs> um, and now, uh, you know, you're sort of shifting that. So when people ask you, what do you do? What is your, usually your answer? I usually answer, I don't know. Um <laughs> And then um, say something, a little something like this. Um, so I just started um, a few weeks ago a, a graduate program for studio art at um, UNC Greensboro. And so when I decided to come to this program, it was partly because the director of the program said, um, you won't have to justify your practice when you come here. No one's gonna, no one's gonna be like frustrated with you that you're not making X, Y, or Z, like whatever it is that, you know, he was like, what you're already doing, we're interested. So why don't you come and do that? And that really got my attention because, um, I do feel like I have such a hard time, um, explaining what it is that I'm up to. Um, and conceptual art, I think often, um, Often I regard conceptual art with like, what are you guys talking about? Like, this is not, what are you doing? Um, but this week um, we read an article with this artist named Fred Wilson, who is incredible. And Fred Wilson was describing his process and he was saying like, well, I do a lot of research. And the, um, the interviewer was like, well, what do you mean by research? And he was like, oh, like I spend a lot of time in a place and I talk to everyone. Um, and I thought like, wait a minute, maybe we should meet <laughs> Fred Wilson and I, um, so I would say I have like a research-based practice in that I like to research things, um, whether that's truly hanging out in a place for a long time or reading all about it and learning about it that way. Um, and then I do a lot of research and then I usually make art out of that. Um, and then the kind of art that I make changes a lot depending on, um, I think the needs of the project, it would seem. Um, so yeah, so sometimes that looks like a play and sometimes that looks like, 
um, uh, like I made an interactive piece called Barter Boat where people barter things back and forth. And um, that that's like more of an interactive piece of something or other. You could call it social practice or um, or um, performance art, I guess, or something. Or someone who came and saw it, um, I think like meekly asked their friend, like, why is this art? which I was like, ah, I've succeeded at last. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and do you want yeah. to tell us a little bit more about that? Like, um, how does it work? Like I show up to your booth and I give you something that's like in my pocket. Yeah. Um, and then in return, we could trade for something that someone gave us in a different city. Um, so we have this like rotating, um, uh, this sort of rotating exhibition of things that, we we traded with people in different places. Um, oh, Turtle the dog is joining us. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Hello. Wow, beautiful. Yeah. She's the best. Yes. Uh, hi, beauty. Okay. Aww. Thank you. Do you have something you'd like to say about conceptual art? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. There we go. Um, so yeah. So that's. I think. I think that's like a great example of the kind of art that I feel like you're making and or striving to make is something that really does make someone question, like, why is this art? Um, yeah. And I'm also very interested and excited in, um, like, I really do like having an audience and, um, like knowing who they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think, I think like, I'm very, I'm very uninterested in the conversation of like, Oh, art should be a universal thing that an artist makes alone in a room and then like leaves for the rest of history to think is good. You know, like that to me is like not, not a very exciting charge. Like I'd much rather be like, okay, I'm going to make something for, um, for Julia and her dad today. Like, right, how's right. that going to go? Um, and to me, yeah. like the more, the more specific I can get about my audience, then I feel like often the stronger the work is. And that usually doesn't, usually doesn't end up, um, excluding people it usually ends up making them more curious um mm. and I feel like having you can have a wider audience or make or even just make a more effective piece of work if you know who you're talking to um that's beautiful which I think maybe is also something I learned from the theater you know um of like like we we all know that feeling of like it, like if you had a good run of a show the night before and then you're doing it again and you're like oh these aren't the same people yeah they yeah. aren't gonna mm. laugh at the same things or they aren't gonna like the same things like i have to meet them again yeah. well, i also think about that in like training actors uh, i uh, do a lot of coaching or teaching but also a lot of coaching that there's no formula like it depends a lot on a, who that actor is in their real life and their background, but mostly their real life. And then also what particular role it is, because it's so different. Like anybody who tries to develop a formula in art, I think, uh, finds an end really quick. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So formulas, I'm less interested in that and more interested in... Um, like I'm, I'm prepared to completely rebuild my skill set depending on my audience. Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> and I think that's really beautiful. I feel like I've recently found my started started finding my voice as a writer, and sometimes 
and mostly it's great, but sometimes it's so overwhelming because I, not everything is within your lived experience, right? But like you're doing this like incredibly empathetic work of trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes, which I think I've learned a lot from acting, but is so true, even maybe even more so in writing because you're trying to actually find the voice of uh, someone on a page and that hopefully exists in real life. (laughs) Yeah, for real. In our sort of preliminary conversation, I was inspired by your, you know, impulse to just like embrace that about it. Because I think it's easy to get overwhelmed with like, you know, you have you have an idea, but then all of a sudden you're like, oh, but in order to like make this a real thing, it requires like all of this um, sort of soul searching and also like actual really hard work and research. Yeah, yeah, and and I keep I keep finding that like that's my favorite part, and then I keep getting down like. Oh man, you know, like I, um, I was doing research about a play that I wrote called keep this for your records, which was, um, uh, about Oak Ridge in Tennessee, which is where, um, the city was built literally like in 1943, uh, just to enrich uranium for the nuclear bombs. And like, they had to build the city overnight. The Manhattan project like plunked it down in a bunch of mud and then was like, uh, who can work here? You? Great. You're working here. Congratulations. Um, and so I was interested in this story about a a Soviet spy who was there, um, who went like relatively undetected. He may have been detected, but nobody, everyone was in such a hurry that they didn't bother, um, busting him because they were like, he's good at his job. Uh, it's fine. <laughs> like, Very like American. The, of us. Yeah, like, truly like the, uh, like, um, like the FBI had a dossier on him, but like they never, like they really didn't have time. Wow. To, they were like, well, he has an electrical engineering degree, so we kind of need him. <laughs> Um, so, uh, that's like what started me learning about Oak Ridge. And then all of a sudden I was there, I know I own like 10 books about Oak Ridge. And one of them is, um, a labor history of the place and like during and after the war about, um, like the folks from Tennessee who were working in these facilities being like, Hey, like, how about some, um, workplace protections for us or like, do we really have to buy our own safety gear? Like what is going on? <laughs> right. Um, wow. or like what, what are we working on? Like, what are we doing? Um, and, uh, it was really interesting and sad to read about all this crazy stuff. Um, and that like a lot of people, um, like got into these bad industrial accidents and then they would, um, like sue for damages, but then because so much of the technology at Oak Ridge was top secret that allowed the facility to say like, Oh, it's top secret. We can't tell you what happened. So you actually can't bring it to a court. So you can't even sue because we can't even tell a judge what it was that you were exposed to. So like, see you later. Um, and like, I was like, well, I'm interested in the Soviet spy, but like, have you guys heard about this? (laughs) You know? (laughs) Um, and so like some of that made it into the play, but that more just opened up this bigger question, um, where I'm also, 
as time goes on, uh, like more and more interested in Southern history and like Southern history as um, something that's been oddly siloed from the rest of like American history. And um, Mm. I've become very interested in historiography, which is like how history is told. Yeah. Um, I think you can learn so much about what we as a culture and a country are trying to figure out by looking at that stuff. And, um, you know, I mean, I think this is a, a well-worn idea, but it, I really think about it a lot of like the stories we tell ourselves is like how we figure out who we are, you know? And, um, I think the way seeing the way we, we tell ourselves stories that are true, um, is like super fascinating. I mean, you can see it even with like um, the way we've told ourselves stories about Thomas Jefferson recently, you know, yeah. and like how the the way that we're telling stories around that is changing. Um, mm. And a lot of times there's even stuff where like the facts may or may not even be what's shifting. It's just like the um, angle. Yeah, like literally the, the the angle or the the focus or something like that the is lens. changing. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Absolutely. And um, I think you know, sure like this is well-worn territory, but I don't I do think that you are doing it differently than it's been done before. And it's really exciting. Yeah. Um, You did that incredible project that I came to see in Spartanburg called the Reconstruction Project. Was that the title? Yeah. Yeah. So I called it Untitled Reconstruction Project. Mm -hmm. Um, That was initially what I called it in the grant because I didn't have a name. And then me and Crystal, who made it together, we were like, oh, yeah, that's actually what it's called. So um, so that is is a a performance that is um, we staged um, transcripts of court hearings that happened in, um, 1871 in Spartanburg County. And there are, um, testimonies for all over the South, but we focused on Spartanburg County cause that's where we literally physically were. Um, and, uh, these, well, I guess they aren't really court hearings. It's this congressional investigation. So, um, federal congressmen came and traveled around the South, uh, in 1870 Um, because there were all these reports about uh, Ku Klux Klan activity and um, Congress wanted to, you know, find out if it was true or like find out what was happening. Um, So they came and they interviewed people. And so on the one hand, it's um, fascinating to look at these as like, wow, the federal government was like trying to figure out how to, um, you know, like repair the country and like stop war from breaking out again. Um, and like this report led to president grant, um, establishing martial law for a while in certain Southern States to like quell Ku Klux Klan violence, mm-hmm. um, which did succeed in like stopping a lot of it and like kind of running off a lot of Klan members for a long time until like the next wave of the Klan, which was much more organized and like more built into these fraternal societies. Um, but on the other hand, it is also Northern congressmen. The guys are from um, Ohio and Pennsylvania and they're coming to places like Spartanburg, which would have been like kind of big, but like not massive at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's these three guys coming in and they're talking to both people who have um, 
like filed claims of clan activity and also people accused of doing uh, clan violence. And um, so they talk to uh, people of like high class, low class, rich and poor. They talk to white people. They talk to black people. They talk to men and they talk to women. Um, and they are uh, very horrible to most of the people that they talk to, unless it is like a white lawyer who's yeah. like clearly rich and educated who they just like hang out and chat with and like let him talk for pages and pages. But the testimonies that I was interested in was in um, uh, African-American folks who were formerly enslaved who they were talking to and they just treat horribly. It is just like so upsetting just to read this text and like um, listen to the way that people were treated when they came, when they were literally, these people were risking their lives by even putting their names on paper uh, in this time. Asked, to, like, have this like invited out. to this place. Yeah. Essentially yeah. to testify and then completely. Yeah. Riddled. Yeah. Um, it is so upsetting. And, um, and so I read these and, you know, what started out as me being like curious about what was going on. And at first being like, Oh geez, like the South has a lot of problems. I was then sitting there being like, all right, well, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia and here's a Congressman from Pennsylvania, like sitting in this room, like listening to people be humiliated and doing like either nothing or contributing directly to it. So like, you know, maybe I need to look at this guy. Um, Mm -hmm. And as time went on working on the project, I, um, like we, we worked on it and there were just all of these things that I realized I had not learned about or dealt with myself, like such as the history of reconstruction, because that's a story that we just straight up skip over in most of my education. Um, but it was this incredible 10 years when, um, like the war ended and uh, black people were allowed to vote and or black men. And they did like they came out and they voted and they got the people that they wanted, uh, like elected. And then you had uh, black folks in state and um, federal legislatures like making laws and like building infrastructure and like building schools and like doing all of this amazing stuff. And it wasn't until 1875 when basically white supremacists like got organized enough to uh, like violently um, quell and like, um, you know, murder and uh, assault enough people that um, they like wrested power back from the government, literally. Like there was a time in South Carolina, I think in 1875, when there were two state legislatures, which was the state legislature that the radical Republicans, who were um, a lot of folks that we would now call progressives, I guess, and a lot of uh, black folks were, uh, had been elected like in a due process. And then there was the white legislature who was like, no, we actually won. So like, we're here too. And like, they both met there were like several times where they were like, okay, well, we're meeting in this building and you're meeting in that building. Like there were two governments, oh <laughs> like that God. was how like literally like not okay. Everything was. And that like, from what I've read, you know, basically like president grant was like, I want this to stop, but 
how do I do it without going to war again? And the Southern states were basically like, we're going to go to war again if you don't just let us have white supremacist governments and do nothing about it. And at the time, the North, which had been so, you know, like they didn't have the infrastructure, um, they, you know, things weren't burned to the ground the way they were in the South, but like, you know, thousands of people had died in this horrific war and no one wanted to go back to war. So they just were like, well, uh, okay. Wow. You know, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) And I'll say like the, the impact of your, of this project that you're talking about was, was just incredible to watch because you did the important work of, of partnering with a, an organization that facilitates dialogue about racial justice, right? Yeah. They're called speaking on barriers. Um, and they're just like the best. And, um, they, yeah, they talk about creating dialogue, uh, through difference or like across difference. And they talk about, um, creating spaces where, um, you can see the strength in our differences rather than thinking of that as weakness. Um, they're the the best and they've taught me anything smart that I say, I probably learned from them, but yeah. But afterwards watching the Q and a that they led at the, after your show, which took place at the public library, you know, there were some older white, white folks in the audience who are like, genuinely didn't know that this was a real thing that happened. And and it was just incredible to realize that they were direct transcriptions that were publicly available and like, you know, really were like, this really happened? And everyone was like, yeah. And they were like, wait, they really talked to them? Like, you know, like it was just this, you know, no no one who has any sort of heart or soul (laughs) you know, could walk away from that and not, um, feel, you know, grounded and I think searching for their own humanity. How did yeah. you come across that, um, source material? Like, did it just, were you digging around for stuff to work on or did it just cross your path or how did that happen? Um, I actually, so I had made a play about, um, uh, first of all, the dog is snoring. Can you guys hear that <laughs> over the audio? I just, only a little check. bit, but hold on, wait. Let's be quiet for a second. No, it's fine. Okay. I'm glad we're clear that it's the dog that's snoring, so no one thinks it's me because yeah. I'm very interested. <laughs> yes. The dog is like, I've heard all of this before. This is so um, yeah, so I had created a play about um, Robert and Clara Schumann and Johannes Brahms. And I had done a ton of research about that, which again is like, that has a no shortage of fascinating, both like pieces of music to listen to, but just books to read and journals and letters and everything. And you um, had a reading of that at Cap 21, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah, I saw right. that. Yeah, you came to that. Yeah. So I was, pre- I was working on that and I presented a reading of it. This is in Spartanburg. And then a librarian came to see it and he like cold emailed me and was like, Jay, do you want to come to the library and like see what stuff I have at the library? Which I was like, that seems weird, but I do. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, I do want to go do that. <laughs> actually correct. Um, so I went and like met this guy at the library and like 
he was like, well, I show this document to everyone because I think it's really important and everyone should know about it. Like whenever he meets an artist, he's like, hey, have you heard of this document? And like, so he had come across these testimonies in his like special collection because, you know, he has this like million volume set um, of all of these um, all these testimonies throughout different states. And, um, so he was like, you should check it out. Like again, like here's a, here's a link to it online and um, you can find it online. It's like, again, if you type in like, um, insurrectionary states committee, 1871, like it'll pop up and you can read PDFs of it at like several different libraries. It's like, um, it's, it's out there. Um, so he was like, yeah, like I, just think that these are fascinating and amazing and more people should know about them and interact with them. It's so important to know that you're, um, you know, out there doing that stuff, like digging around and finding things that nobody might ever, it might not, might not, might not come into the consciousness of people like Jules was saying about the Q and a afterwards, had you not done that work. That's kind of why we're podcasting actually, because we're talking to people who do great stuff that, my the concern was which i jules and i arrived at together was like well what if somebody never hears about this work or this person or and they mean so much to um to us so it's kind of a a similar vibe in that we're just trying to like find ways to bring to consciousness or into just like into one's awareness people who are doing work that's not uh you know, not making it to HBO or whatever, but is is incredibly valuable work or Broadway stages or even off Broadway stages. Um, I I I have to say because of this is maybe a, a not a very graceful transition, but I really want to know how it got from why the theater for you, like going back because you're a fascinating artist to me, and you do so many different things, and the theater is in my blood hence it's also in julius blood it's like from you know i was i came out of a theater family a theater tradition and it led it's led to everything uh uh in my life everything in my work is is you know i can trace it right back to that but how and and also theater people right now are in um, serious uh circumstances many people are in serious circumstances but live theater in particular right at the moment uh, I'm focusing on is just in such a difficult place. So I'm curious, I would love to know like how you, how you, why the theater got to you, like why that was your thing. Was it a person, uh, an event, you know, like an, like sort of tracking from where you started to where you are a little bit. Yeah. So I think that I, um, uh, my mom would say that she signed me up for a class and that like, it's all thanks to her. So <laughs> we can, can't wait to meet your mom one day. Oh yeah. We can be, we can be grateful to her for that, for that choice. Okay. Um, uh, and I think that there's that, but there's also that, um, yeah, like my, my best friend who's still my best friend, we've been best friends since we were six. Um, she was doing a class at the same youth theater. And I think I wanted to like do the class that she was doing or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was in middle school. I must've been in like sixth grade or seventh grade or something like that. Yeah. And um, I saw uh, my parents had always taken me to like all kinds of art things. Like my mom's a 
painter. Um, my dad writes a lot, but I think in secret, um, my stepmom studied, uh, visual art, uh, and they're all just like, um, yeah, like overeducated, uh, aesthetes, you know, like they're gourmands, like they care about furniture, (laughs) they care about music, they care about birds, they care about paintings. Like they're like, Oh, darling, like it's a Welliver. Don't embarrass me. You know what I mean? Like, but (laughs) they're, they're, they're not like, they're not, um, they're not people from Frasier, the show, but they're yeah. like very close. Like they aren't very <laughs> like Frasier people. I think like want to be snobby so that people think that they're rich. And like my parents would like people to just think they're snobby and like would hate to be rich if that makes sense. <laughs> um, I understand perfectly. <laughs> okay, great. So, um, so like they are, so yeah, so I was definitely like raised with this idea of like the arts was like the most important thing that there was. Um, and, uh, then I think when I found acting, it was in like that perfect, like tween, you know, part of my life where I was like in a school where I had friends fine, but I didn't really feel like I fit in. And like, all of a sudden I was like with the wonderful people who are theater people, um, And then I think I also just found like a place for all of my energy and enthusiasm to get used finally. Like I just like have a lot of energy and enthusiasm. And sometimes I feel embarrassed when I'm like, Oh, was I, did I get too excited about this? (laughs) Theater people are like the only people who like, that's not possible. You know what I mean? (laughs) Oh, um, I love you. Uh, but like, you know, the feeling like we've all had where we're like, you know, 20 people roll into a bar at like 1140 and are like, are you guys still serving food? Thank you. You know, and like, (laughs) the whole, the whole like side room is now like very, very loud. Like, and like the looks on people's faces when they're like, what's going on in there? (laughs) No, it's not a bachelorette party, but. (laughs) Yeah, but it could be. Are you getting married? (laughs) We're so happy for you. That's amazing. Um, (laughs) And, um, I think that was also a place where I could, where I, yeah. So I like found this channel for my like energy. And then, um, I also, uh, I saw this production of 12th night and I feel like so many people I know have some sort of like gateway drug Shakespeare play or something like that. But like, for me, it was this production of 12th night, which of course, like when I think back on it, I'm like, Oh yeah. Like, I didn't think the Viola and the Olivia really understood what they were doing. And like this, this part was a mess. And like that part was like this, but like the, the, um, the Aigu cheek and the Toby Belch and the Feste and the Mariah and the Malvolio were just like, perf- they were just like so good. And, um, they like, that was a production I saw like three times and I just was like, Oh, finally, like there's something that like, there's something for me, I think was really the feeling that I had when I saw that play. Um, because I was like, wow, this is funny, but this is also like, you know, really does have darkness to it, but it doesn't have the kind of darkness where it's like, um, hopeless or, um, like empty or nihilistic or something, you know, it's like just this like exquisite piece of writing that is about like the whirly gig of time, you know? And, um, and so like having a relationship with that play, I think also really kicked off like, wow, plays can do stuff that other pieces of art can't necessarily do. Mm. Um, and I think also having like, you know, 
uh, like a lead who's like uh, butch and femme. Well, yeah. I was like, I'm interested. Yeah. Um, and then also, you know, like my parents are divorced and like, frankly, being like the diplomatic go between, between two people who are very similar, but think they're very different is like <laughs> also something that I was like, mm, I get it. So, um, <laughs> So like that, that play has just really been a cornerstone for me for a long time. And like, you know, my, here's also an example of like how lovely my family is of like, once they, they were like, Oh, like we really like this 12th night. So then my dad, anytime there was a 12th night anywhere, my dad would be like, there's a 12th night we're going. <laughs> so We've seen as a family, we've seen just like tons and tons of 12th nights. Like for a while, I, we definitely did over 12 at one point, which is like exciting. Right. Wow. I was going to um, ask, maybe, yeah. Was it yeah. 12, 12 nights? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think like the most, usually, I mean, it's a popular play. So it was like pretty easy to like find productions if we were on vacation somewhere or something like that. But right. then like, yeah. I think the most ridiculous thing we did was we drove to Pittsburgh for one night just to see the Globe Shakespeare production with uh, Mark Rylance. Um, wow. And it was uh, 100% worth it. It was like yeah. one of the best, it was just one of the best things. Um, uh, yeah. So, oh, that was a loud snore. Um, so, <laughs> so I think like, and then also aging with that play is so fun. And then like, you know, there's, I think that play just like has something for everyone where like, of course it's funny and of course it's sad, but then it also has all this other stuff going for it that um, is just super fascinating and like getting older and seeing, um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a play where like anyone can truly be the star of it. Like I've seen productions where Fabian was like a standout performer. Absolutely. Who doesn't enter or exit. He's just there. No, and often just like all his lines are given to Feste, which I'm like, he Feste would not say the stuff that Fabian says, but no, no, that's, no. <laughs> that's right. Beside uh, the point, but maybe you um, need to write the play Fabian. <laughs> yeah, that'll be so good. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's just like a guy. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I should do a production where he's just like in the audience. And he, that, <laughs> that actually makes sense if he's an audience member. Totally. You're like, Thumbs oh. up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, yeah, sounds good. Um, but I love like reading about it and learning more about it. Like every time I do that, it gets more exciting. Um, and then I have this, uh, this group that like, yeah, we're definitely at a weird impasse because of COVID, but it's called Scrappy Shakespeare. And we would do free outdoor productions of Shakespeare plays in Spartanburg, which sounds very like run of the mill until you're like, Hmm, that's never happened in Spartanburg before <laughs> Yeah, like, real. that we can find out. And I mean, there's a reason for that. Cause summer in Spartanburg, is not as nice as summer in Vancouver, Canada, for example. Yeah. But um, so like we couldn't perform too late into the summer because it was just like we would die of dehydration. But um, mm -hmm. but we so we would do these, you know, we would do the plays. And that was really cool because we had this very like all bets were off kind of thing where suddenly like we were just the nerds in charge. And like people in Spartanburg are so like, I love the audiences there because they're just excited that there's a thing to do and they'll just come to it, which like, doesn't mean that they aren't intelligent or like, I mean, they're definitely Shakespeare nerds who come and enjoy that for that reason. But also just people are like, Oh geez, like me and my family, we'll go do something. Cool. That was fun. Yeah. Um, and, and I really love to perform 
I really love to perform for folks who are like genuinely curious instead of folks who are like, you know, the Fraser Cranes of the world. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. I, and, I yeah. A, I've done uh, two tour, two Shakespeare tours. Um, one of which was, we went to a prison. We went to like some low income schools. We did just like specifically like, uh, lesser served communities and yeah. it was the freaking best it was the best yeah. and yeah. Then the yeah. other tour you know was was Mackers and um with the warehouse oh, yeah and it was I yeah. mean it had its challenges uh but it was just like the genuine curiosity and and like the youth that is like you know in that space that you were talking about where they're just like so pumped about it but like are teenagers so it's like they don't really want to show it but they just think you're like the coolest ever yeah (laughs) you know it's so great amazing and also like you know um again like well-worn but true like there's a reason a Shakespeare play can last for a few centuries like it's it got a few things figured out so like it's really nice to do a play where like I trust the play so much that I'm like all right well I'm just gonna like do my text and then see what happens and um yeah like it's just so fun like the plays are actually made the other thing that's cool about the plays is that they're actually made to be done like outdoors with some twinkle lights like that's another reason that they get done so much that way you know is like they're that's what they're for um it's like a barbecue like a barbecue is good it's been around for centuries like because people like to hang out you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) um so so like getting so uh so we did 12th night and everyone was like what part you know it's very like um, ensemble. So I was like, what part do you want? And I was like, ah, at last my chance to play Malvolio has come. (laughs) Not the last chance I get to play Malvolio, but, um, we like doing that was really fun. And then I was doing research about it and it was very interesting because I feel like these days, like, you know, I'll be revenged on the whole pack of you is often seen as like, oh, poor Malvolio. He's been bullied so terribly, you know? And like, this is an anti-bullying message. And like, I was reading about it and it said that Malvolio was based on a real guy who was like the steward of the castle that they were performing in. And he, or not the steward, but like some, he had some fancy title and he was like an obnoxious dick. Like nobody (laughs) liked him. He was uptight and awful. He hit on a woman who was like in the queen's court, which was just like not happening, dude. Like what is wrong with you? And he would have actually been in the audience for the show. Uh, like that's how oh, that's salty cool. Shakespeare would have been. Was he like wrote this, like, like made fun of a man who was in the audience. And like, it was very clear that like nobody was like feeling sorry for him, like in this show. And I thought that that's was right. so fascinating where I was like, Oh yeah. Like, you just have to do the play. Like, don't try to make it like Malvolio has been cyberbullied. Y- like, oh, he, yeah, he's a, he's a jerk. And like, he misbehaved and like, there's all this stuff about class, of course, that like is very different from today. Um, but like, he really is like, he really is a creep. Like the more you make him a creep, like the funnier it is. Yeah. And <laughs> you know, like him saying, I'll be revenged on the whole pack of you is like, is hilarious and like messed up and like not if like he has like a t- like oh like oh wow everyone should have been Melvolio's friend like no <laughs> he didn't want to be anyone's friend at all either he thought it was <laughs> stupid but if you do want to look for that story in the play like it is of course there with like Andrew Agee with like yeah oh my gosh being, like so screwed by his alleged friend and then like 
that part at the end where Belt, Toby Belch has like the thing on his forehead and he just turns to Andrew and is just like, shut up. I never want to hear from you again. I know. And like Andrew Iguchik is just like sitting there like he doesn't say anything for the rest of the show. Like <laughs> it's so awful. Poor Andrew. And like, is he doing his best? Like, not really. But like, you know, he he didn't really do anything wrong. Like, he's no. just trying to have a friend, you know? Um, and... <laughs> So I think like, you know, the play has that stuff of like people who are definitely get like the the wrong end of the stick from like mean people who are not thinking about someone's humanity. But like, I, I always am like, don't try to like squeeze a Shakespeare play into the wrong hole. Cause the answer is probably there. You're just like not looking for it. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Or not, not or pick a different play you know where i think also this weird thing of like oh like every shakespeare play is universal i don't agree with that i think that's weird like i mean like if you try to read the winner's tale you're like what is happening yeah i (laughs) am i am i tripping what's going on did he safe to say that the best and worst productions I've seen are Shakespeare productions. That is absolutely correct. Yeah, that's so yeah. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it sometimes has it all. Sometimes are just transported, and sometimes it is so, you know, like... I like, like, how do that, I get uh, out of here? Yeah, like, don't, trying to squeeze the play into some other thing is so unnecessary. There's another play that would do that. And, um, yeah, just yeah. pick up pick another play. It's fine. There's so many. There's so many plays. Um, yeah, I know. I, I, think... I was working with uh, students on uh, last year on uh, back when we had audiences and things in the room. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. Sure, they, sure. Uh, they were doing the, the trial scene from The Merchant of Venice. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, um, one of my colleagues was suggesting maybe I don't want to, like, deal with the, the end of that, you know, the transformation at the end of what, oh, wow. what Portia does to Shylock and all that. And I wanted to be able to talk about it as yeah. an educator. So it was um, great that we had to have those conversations and do that, have that whole, that yeah. whole um, thing. It's really perplexing, that play. And yeah. it should be, I think. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Being ready to grapple with the text that you're like invoking, I think is really important. And um, have you guys read Backwards and Forwards, that book by, I think it's by David Ball? I have it, I think, but I don't think I ever, I don't think I've read it. No. I really recommend it. It is a it is a little book about oh, dramaturgy. You told me about it. I think it's yeah. the best. It is so rude because he sits there in his little book and he's like, most people who direct a play have no business doing so at all because they haven't really read it. he uses hamlet as the frame but he's like listen gang like hamlet isn't clinically depressed because that didn't exist at that time like obviously people were clinically depressed but they didn't have words for that also this is a play it's not about a real person it's about an imaginary person that shakespeare made up so he he says like you should be able to read a play and then read it backwards and like explain why what each line leads to the next line and he argues that like in shakespeare and in all great plays but it's very clear in shakespeare things lead from one thing to another very quickly and clearly so he's like it is a it is a victorian uh delusion that hamlet can't decide whether or not he's going to cook kill claudius instead he's waiting for evidence Mm. and he's like look at the play and see when hamlet kills claudius and he 
proves it because the line before Hamlet stabs Claudius is Laertes saying the king is to blame. Yeah, yeah. Which I was like, what? Oh my God. Like, that's right. He wasn't like, I'm sad. I can't figure out what to do. He like knows what to do. He's just like, I need, I need the proof. Um, and also this guy talks about how setting something in Denmark in the Elizabethan times was like setting it in game of Thrones, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, which I was like, wow, how many productions have we seen that are like set in like an English court? And then you're like, oh, wait, it wasn't set in England. It was set in Denmark. That's different at that time. Um, so, so basically being like, oh yeah, like we don't do our homework and then we're left with like a bad production of a play. So I would just rather do the homework and I don't really care if we get to the play or not. Cause I like the homework. <laughs> so I much. think that's like uh, totally like your, like raison d'etre yeah it's really true <laughs> like whatever happens after i do the homework is fine with me but like i'm not worried about that i'm just like what what are we talking about <laughs> but it's really true that i think like uh you know something we were talking about and we uh, we should wrap it up pretty soon but yeah, yeah. sorry yeah. it's okay no it's fine okay. it's yeah. <laughs> when we were uh I, you are someone i feel like i could talk to you for days and days uh never yeah. get bored um but i think uh you know, it's this interesting space of like, and this has been a recurring theme, I think, in all of our interviews of like doing the homework so that you can kind of let it go and like then trust your instincts because you've done the homework. Yeah. And, and because, you know, obviously the more experience you have, the more you trust yourself also. But I just find like, especially with directing, like if I know the play really well, then it's like this thing that I think, you know, I've heard other directors say, it's like, you're watching the rehearsal and you're like, ah, stop. <laughs> and then like, you figure out what you're going to say between the time that you say stop and then you walk up to the stage. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's this like, and maybe it's because thanks to, thanks to my blood, right. it's just this gut. It's just a gut, completely instinctual thing. Yeah. And, and like all of those instincts are way better and more informed and make more sense to the actors if I've done my homework, you know? It's like, yeah. Yeah. Like the more time you spend with it, the more you can start understanding a play is like the secret worlds that the play has in it. Um, and like, I just really love that, that image and idea so much. And that like, from, you know, like the great plays that I've seen like from top to bottom, like create this new logic and this new set of rules that like yeah. you as an audience, like reacclimate to. And I think even like just that way of um, experiencing art starts to get important where like paintings can do that or like, um, mm. like all kinds. I mean, I think that's, I think that's one thing that art does. And I think it's really easy to see it in theater um, mm -hmm. because you're like, oh yeah, of course, like they wear the the clothes that they wear in this world. But I think you could say the same thing about a piece of music, you know, where you're like, oh, like these are the rules of this piece of music, or these are yeah. the rules of this poem, or um, and I don't mean rules in a like, you know, uptight way. I just mean like there's a a new logic or intuition. Yeah, and I do think like even I think that there's something to be said for allowing, and this is like full circle. I think from what we were talking about with like process is like allowing yourself to be upheld by or be held by the world that it, that you're being invited into, whether you're a, an audience member or one of the creators, it's like the play is there and the, or the painting is there and it requires time. Like you have to just spend yeah. time with it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And like that, yeah, that Fred Wilson thing of like the way I do research is like hang out and talk to people, um, Mm -hmm. I think is like just an amazing way to articulate that. And there's this other artist named Kevin Beasley, who I'm like new to, but was reading about was like, what? Uh, And he, he was doing an artist talk and he said, I'm not thinking about like, oh, I'm a sculptor or, oh, I'm a video maker or I'm a whatever. He's like, I'm thinking about being, um, being like in deep connection or conversation with the things that I have an interest in. Mm. So like, um, Mm -hmm. and even just that idea and invitation to me was really profound where I was like, Oh, okay. Like, I think I've been doing it inside out a lot where I keep being like, I'm sorry, I'm working on my play for so long. Like I just have 10 books to read, you know, or something like that. Yeah, Totally. But actually being like, okay, like, I mean, especially also with the, the bizarre, um, like cloistered time that graduate school is where I'm like, oh, like the biggest thing I have to do is show the professors what I've been up to at the end of the semester. And like, am I terrified? Absolutely. But like, they can't do anything to me except not like it. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Which maybe they already don't, I, I don't know, you know, like that's none of my business, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm also like, I think this is one of the only times that I'll have the, the privilege to sit here and be like, Hmm, I don't know. I don't know about all that, you know? Right. And, um, that's like, it's really weird. It's really different to, not to make something because the show is at eight. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's a new try. It's a new way to try. And I, I do think making a show because the show is at eight is a really valuable way to make stuff. I think it's the way most people make anything. Um, so right. I don't think yeah. that that's like mm-hmm. a bad way to do, to do something at all, but, um, but it's, it's one way and trying this other way is like really weird for me. Yeah. I just uh, feel sometimes I'm like, have I been working for 12 hours straight or have I not done anything at all? Like, I, I, I don't know the difference yet. Whereas like mm-hmm. in the, in the part two of this podcast where we talk about like methods or something, um, we can yeah. talk more about time, but like just the way that I'm so used to like operating full tilt for like three hours in a rehearsal mm-hmm. now compared to like, okay, you have a day. Yeah. Of like time. And you have a space, like we have time, I have time and a space. Um, Mm -hmm. and then, um, a me, and I'm used to having like collaborators and like no time and no space. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah. yeah, So it's, it's just this totally radical new way of like trying to expand a muscle that I was working on before or strengthen a muscle that I started to have, but yeah. And then we didn't get to any of the other things, but you know, yeah, but I think a part my, two. <laughs> I think one my last question is related to that, which is like, um, it sounds like you're in a process of like not not pausing at all, but you are like um transitioning and like massaging yourself as an artist. Um, but I wonder like when like where you see yourself um in terms of like an ideal project. Like, is there something that you're like, oh, yeah I have the um, time or whatever like this is what I would like to dedicate my energy to yeah um I think I I'm looking for ways to to show up for 
for community that are not about uh, like a white intellectual teaching anyone anything mm-hmm. unless the community in question has been like, can someone teach us X, Y, Z? And I'm like, I can, you know? Um, And so I'm very interested in like the ways that um, white intellectuals or even just intellectuals in general have like uh, uh, really like failed the communities that we've spent so much time saying the, the powers that be are underserving. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would really, love to learn more about people who are are like showing up for under under um under resourced communities yeah and like doing effective stuff with folks because every time i meet people from under resourced communities i'm like wait nothing's wrong with these people <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, of course we have these crazy national narratives about how what's wrong what's wrong with people who are poor or something you know what I mean it's like and um and then like the more time I like spend thinking about that I'm like no like what what is going on so um so I think like I would really love to be in alignment with um but yeah, like showing up, showing up for audiences who are excited for programming and not making that decision because um, like everyone can pay for a hundred dollar ticket or like everybody yeah. wants to feel smart by seeing the thing that I'm making it or like it's other intellectuals like rewarding ourselves, which like I think there's ways to do stuff that um, I don't mean like I never want to work with other people with, you know like degrees again or something like that but like um or you know I also don't want to like diss my education but um I think it's like something that I feel concerned that like it's so unclear about how to do that and it's so like um yeah it's just super unclear I feel like we don't have a lot of like strategies like established of like ways to do that um and we need them and I think because it's unclear, there's like a lot of room to develop yeah. things that, yeah. that do work to serve yeah. that purpose. Yeah. So I'm thinking um, about that. And then I'm also doing a lot of work about food and I'm interested in like food traditions. And I think I would like to make a mushroom log, which is a log that you like put mushroom spores into and then it grows mushrooms. And <laughs> amazing. it's only like you can buy the spores like for 12 bucks on the internet. Wow. <laughs> uh, Cool. Send me photos. <laughs> Maybe we'll post one yeah. in the show notes. Um, It'll just look like a log because it takes like a year for the mushrooms to grow. <laughs> <laughs> so you can photograph any log and just say, here it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, any take log a walk be... in the woods and just send me a photo of that. A potential <laughs> mushroom log. A potential mushroom log, right. Yeah. Um, Anna, I love you. Thank you so much for doing this. I love you too. This has been so wonderful. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to have had this conversation. It was great. Yeah, I think uh, part two is probably uh, inevitable because there's a lot of things that, you know, more that we could like tap from all the stuff that you bring. But I'm really thrilled uh, to have this time with you for sure. Yeah, thank you so much. That was the incredible Anna Abhal Elliott. Find out more about our guests and about us at whywedothispodcast.com. 